The Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, a time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful time. Since the show presently has no sponsors, we are going to be running fake ad reads. These ads are intended as parody and should not be taken as anything but parody. This episode brought to you by Tippy Taps, the excited dance that dogs do. In this episode, we will be exploring the question, what is world building? So Seth, it's time to confess, what is world building? World building is the process of establishing a world for a narrative. Now, the narrative could be a story, it could be a video game, it could be a movie, it could just be a history of hmm. that particular world. But world building is the, is the process of sort of establishing the boundaries of that world, telling the reader or the watcher what is permissible and what is not permissible. Oh, that's really interesting. That there's a lot in there, Seth. Like, um, when when we talk about world building, actually, like, uh, putting something new together, um, does it? I mean, an an example would be this. Uh, you you could say like Charles Dickens in his writing about like Oliver Oliver Twist. Um, could you say that there are elements of world building in that story, like the sense that um. You know, he has to establish these different characters and what they do and what they like to do and don't like to do and kind of give you a sense of them. Like, is that, does that play a part in world building at all? Characters certainly play a part in world building, but there's a difference between what Charles Dickens was doing with his stories and what, say, Jules Verne was doing with Journey to the, to the Center of the Earth. Because Jules Verne was actually creating a world that is different from earth whereas dickens was actually just taking a historical context in this case it was actually his present context and he was saying i'm going to give you a story inside this present context so world building is a little bit different one of the one of the kind of soft rules for world building and i say soft rules because there really isn't a strict definition for world building because it's a fairly new concept in fiction. But one of the soft rules for world building is that the world must be different from Earth. So this actually rules out quite a lot of historical fiction, nay, pretty much all of historical fiction. I'm thinking Dickens, Jane Austen, uh, you know, the Master and Commander series with Patrick O'Brien. There's no real world building in there because it takes place in a contemporary setting. The, The rules are as you know them in the present world, and um, or the past world as it is with historical fiction. But when you think about like some sci-fi actually fits, um, you know, kind of outside of our, our world-building schema right now. You know, it's H.G. Wells, the, the Invisible Man, just has an Invisible Man in the contemporary setting. It's kind of a, um, a sci-fi what-if question about that. And then Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea features stuff like underwater farming and they and Nemo has this whole like society he's kind of building 
But at the end of the day, it's set in the contemporary setting. They're still wandering around the Atlantic. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's all there is. There's no world building required. You're absolutely right. So Jules Verne was writing what, what he thought could actually happen should that technology exist, hmm. right? And everything that happened in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was true to life as far as he knew it and as far as his readers knew it. So science fiction is very interesting because, as you brought up, it doesn't necessarily include world building, huh. right? Fantasy, almost without exception, includes world building because even if you, say, take a modern fantasy, like, mm. say, you look at Jim Butcher and the Dresden Files, you, you could argue that, no, this is set on Earth in our present yeah. time, but there's magic, yeah. right? It's, it's an alternate world to to the world we actually live in. Whereas for, whereas Jules Verne was actually writing about, hey, if there's an underwater world with our current technology, this is what it would look like. Yeah. So, I mean, th there's a couple of interesting things. There's two intellectual properties that turn up in my mind when we talk about sci-fi and a lack or a, a need for uh, world building. And the first that, 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 that I recall is, is District 9. Uh, if you recall the uh, the movie where aliens had descended on planet Earth and it turned out they were like refugees functionally and nobody really knew what they were doing there. Their spaceship was trashed. Everybody on board was had sort of an seemed almost animalistic and uh, they kind of brought them down and put them in a slum in like Johannesburg, South Africa. And the interesting thing about that movie is that it's, hey, it's the world as you know it, except there are aliens there and so they had to do like lots of like fictional news reporting and things like that but it strikes me that the world building in it is kind of like it's like halfway there it's kind of like how people would respond and so the world is distinct and so certain geopolitical events changed in character because we now know there are aliens and so that's interesting but the world still was largely the same which is interesting the movie was much about how we remain the same we have the same kind of prejudices and uh, it was kind of a, I felt like it was a bit of an allegory for apartheid in some ways. For sure. So that brings up something really interesting because the other soft rule for world building is that world building is all about establishing the boundaries mm. around a story. Yeah. It's all about establishing what you can't do, or at least it's all about giving the the reader or the a viewer a guide by which they can determine whether what is happening is is realistic or not whether it breaks their immersion right that's really interesting it's uh it's it seems like it, in in that sense then world building can uh can aid a writer in overcoming some of the worst excesses of writing like creating a, a an apparent deus ex machina or um any other kind of arbitrary influence on the story. It can help the reader kind of read it and not go, oh, but that makes no sense. Why did this happen? Right. It creates, it creates what you could consider a realistic world. So even if an owl delivers a letter that says, hey, you're invited to wizard school, the reader doesn't say, well, that's weird. Why would an owl be doing that? They say, oh, no, this is a magical story. 
an interesting thing is I'd kind of give you this is this is this is interesting. I do I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you a little pushback on this. Sure. I find because the original like part of that story, magic is alien to the world that we know for those first few chapters. And it is deliberately done to be odd. And so the world building in a sense benefits from the inherent oddness of the hidden world of wizards. Because the theory is the muggle world carries on as it does, right? And no one is the wiser. So when an owl delivers the mail, it breaks the conception in that moment, though it becomes normal later. And it's a way of using the world building that they've already established. Like, oh, everything's, everything's hunky-dory and normal. The Dursleys are uh, oh, pretty mean to Harry. We don't really understand why there's some weird stuff going on with Harry. And, and the deliberate breaking of that early world is what creates that sense of wonder. So it's, in a way, them bending the rules they've established in order to draw the attention of the reader. So I'm going to agree with you halfway. Yeah, I like I'm gonna, that. <laughs> I'm going to say that, that, yes, in the early chapters of Harry Potter, there's this device is used to, to bring a hook for yes. the reader, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, there is a mystery. Yeah. Right? In past conversations, you've aptly described the Harry Potter series as teenage mystery novels. Yeah. Right? That's what yeah. they are. Mm-hmm. And this first one is a great example of that in that it it gives the reader this sense of, okay, something's different. Something's weird here. Uh, Let's explore and figure out what it is. The reason I say I'd only go halfway is because Harry himself is set up as a character with a mystery. Yeah. And so the reader is on the lookout. They know in the back of their mind that something is off about the situation. Why does Harry have to live in the closet? Why... Are these people being mean to him? Where are his parents? He's had this this boring life up until now, or this this hard life up until now. What's going to take him from here to to being a hero? Right. So Mm. so in a sense, the and we can we can definitely get into this. In a sense, the world building includes, in this case, the narrative tropes that the author is establishing Hmm. that's giving the reader the sense that there is something bigger outside of this house yeah what i'm seeing at face value is not everything there is one of the things we kind of often come back to in our conversations kind of outside of the podcast is this notion that in world building you do not necessarily have to have a Tolkien-esque, million-page historical kind of mythology established for a given setting. Harry Potter is a really excellent example of this. There is a huge difference between the way the worlds were set up in Harry Potter and in Lord of the Rings, but both are quite effective. Hmm. I think that it depends a lot on the intention of the author. One might say that we have you can have heavy world building and you can have light world building and both of them can be good for your story however they they produce a different result lord of the rings is a complete world that has characters in it yes harry potter is a story about characters that happens to take place in the wizarding world yeah and it's interesting that you even mention the wizarding world 
because the Wizarding World was like, um, as a brand, it became a brand layer. They've got that thing where the book kind of opens and you see a splay of different wands in it. And that's the Wizarding World. And that's what you see at the intro to every Fantastic Beasts movie. But that didn't exist initially. The thing that's wild is that Rowling kind of put this world together. And there were, you know, some elements that were not very, uh, very developed in it. But we kind of made peace with them and moved on because we were mostly driven by the characters. For a really good example is including the Time Turner. So uh, any anybody who reads like any fiction knows that like time travel is incredibly fraught, incredibly complicated, and it can lead to all kinds of narrative faux pas. J.K. Rowling kind of just dove into it and created this thing, and because it, it, it was it, convenient for the story at the time, it fit the character. It yeah. generally fit the narrative, and it was a good way for them to to solve some of the problems that that they were facing. She didn't worry about the impact on the rest of the world, mm, which is why I'd kind of recommend if anybody gets a chance to to look up the how it should. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, but to look up the how it should have ended for Harry Potter book seven, movie seven, or movie eight. It was movie eight by that point. Yeah. Um, so they have this uh, thing where, where Snape uh, uses the time turner to go back in time and kill Voldemort, which is the same thing we wonder all the time, uh, you know, in the movies. It's like they have this time machine. And so they, they're like, I've got an idea. We have found a way to manipulate time. The implications are enormous. Let's give it to a nerdy kid so she can get to class on time. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, just strikes me as like, we have mastered time. I know what we'll do. <laughs> like, yeah and Absolutely. um will will help an overachiever um so it's uh it, it, it's kind of one of those one of those things and you the thing is though is the way the story's written it makes a lot of sense like as as, as weird as it sounds it's kind of like they wouldn't mess with time travel in any deeply significant way they would have hard rules about it and there, there's a there's a sense that much like the eagles in lord of the rings that you can kind of turn around and say they may be able to do something, but they may just accept that the cost is too high, even yeah. to solve this massive problem. So it also leads to a really interesting question, which is why didn't Voldemort just take the time turner away from her and go back and kill Harry Potter? Because bad yeah, guys just don't like play by the same stab rules. this time instead yeah, of trying to use a spell. Yeah, exactly. Just be like, hey, there's a baby. I'm going to drop a brick on him. <laughs> That's so dark. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah, sorry, it is. There are definitely times when narrative is favored over world building. When you have one of the un unintended consequences of having a really tightly built world is that it can't then be added to in a significant way. What do I mean by this? Lord of the Rings has been established. There's a new show coming out. The world is already built. And if the new yeah. show doesn't adhere to the world that is already built, people are going to be furious because it is understood that Tolkien wrote a watertight story. But he didn't just write a watertight story. He wrote a watertight world for the story to live in. In a sense, the narrative lends itself to the world rather than the world supporting the narrative. There's so much more that goes al along with the story of the One Ring that we don't actually see in the three books of Lord of the Rings. There's whole periods of time that are alluded to where 
Golem has the ring and there's all sorts of stuff going on and corruption is growing and he has entire sections of the world that we never really get to like Numenor and yes. everything that's going on down there. We go through Lord of the Rings and it's alluded to that Numenor exists still and that people are there and things are happening. This is contrasted very differently with Harry Potter. Now that the world has been established, you might say that, yeah, other things were happening. But for the purposes of the story, the only people mm. who existed existed in Britain, except for yes. the one time yeah. when Goblet of Fire, I think, the yeah, other schools uh, show uh, up. Durmstrang and Bobaton. But they're literally created for that moment, and then they go away. And so, so there's a there's a difference mm. in whether the world serves to further your narrative or whether your narrative serves to further your world. Yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from, Seth. It's it's interesting that these different worlds kind of have these, uh, you know, it, it, you occasionally have this world that is so well developed, and then you kind of put people in it. And other times you have a narrative, like a story, a specific story you're looking to tell. And the world kind of conveniently assembles around the characters as they go, uh, much yeah. like in Harry Potter. Star Wars is probably another good example of that. Um, but I, I think the big issue really is that when you're creating a world to serve uh, a narrative, actually, the, the other way around, when you're creating a world and later you're going to dump a narrative in it, it's just a lot of backfilling work. It's tons and tons and tons of discipline required to do it. But first, we're going to hear a quick word from our sponsor today, Tippy Taps. I often find that the weight of the world is just too much. I'm a huge dog fan, and maybe the best thing ever is the little tip-tap dances that dogs do when they're excited to see you. These excited dances are called Tippy Taps, and the internet is just full of them. The sound itself is sure to draw you out of your existential malaise, and they're easy to get. Just check YouTube or Reddit for an ample supply of tippy taps. From a dog getting treats to seeing their master come home from a long trip, you're sure to be delighted by the sight of dogs doing little dances just because, well, they're excited. You could even get one yourself by going to a local breeder or shelter to witness the sheer majesty of tippy taps in the flesh today. Tippy taps. Find dog. Witness joy. <laughs> oh man all right uh so um that's our first sponsor ladies and gentlemen um so i, I mean that kind of leads us smoothly on here we're uh in this in this podcast we kind of hope to address lots of different types of world building so there's going to be lots of kind of shows in store for you here so um Seth, let's let's just fire off a couple here and talk uh, talk just a little bit about some of their implications yeah, so we have different things like dystopia, we have apocalyptic. You know, dystopia and and both of those things, dystopia and apocalyptic sound really similar, but but they're actually fairly distinct world-building differences and the way that you build that world is going to deeply impact the type of narrative you're telling because when you're looking at dystopia, you're looking at things like yeah. tyranny. What does tyranny look like? And in an apocalyptic story, you could yeah. have tyranny, but the pressing need of the characters is going to be different. In a dystopia, you know, you're looking mm. at uh, yeah. 
what does the rulership of the world look like? Whereas in apocalyptic, you're looking at how do you survive on the very bottom? And so, so both of those are yeah. types of world building that we might see. Both of them are going to be, uh, they're going to be lending different airs sort of. Um, we might also have like alternate world, which would be a fantasy or a science fantasy. Um, again, as we mentioned, hard sci-fi, if it's future set, will probably include creating a yeah. world because you're dealing with technology that doesn't exist. Um, yes. Sci-fi yeah. that's that's present mm. set, that's set in the present, sometimes doesn't include building yeah. a world. But, but future sci-fi, so when you talk about um, like Orson Scott Card or Isaac Asimov, you know, these guys are, are building new worlds mm. for us to explore. Yeah, and entirely new ways to do it. I was thinking even, as you say, dystopia, um from earlier one of the things that's interesting is usually the world you're building is a form of critique for a form of of societal control or governance so sometimes it can be a hyper capitalistic society where corporations rule the world or it could be a uh a socialist society like in 1984 or a um kind of a uh genetic uh sort of eugenic kind of concept as in the brave new world and you can kind of see how these would work together uh even uh idiocracy is kind of a question of whether that would be a dystopian <laughs> or apocalyptic setting but even that's like a fascinating critique on an it element is. of society that you wish to highlight and sometimes we actually get a nice blending of these things so something that comes to mind in terms of world building is uh cyberpunk which is a genre that is obviously growing in popularity and a lot of it's starting to become a little bit mm. more mainstream um you have elements in in ready player yeah, one yeah. your a new video game is coming out next year cyberpunk uh 2077 which is huge keanu reeves absolutely keanu reeves right and we just need to say his name Karen. but but what's really interesting about this kind of world building is that it marries a whole bunch of different ideas right you have a sense of dystopia mm. yeah, yeah yeah you have a sense of future yeah. uh future future technology you have different social interactions yeah and a potential critique on transhumanism and like it's it's extremely and a, a critique and sometimes lauding of it so it goes back and forth and it kind of sci-fi has historically been a really really interesting way to run a fictional experiment to see how an idea might work or play out. So the worlds you're building may well be heavily influenced by a concept that's popular even on TV now. And you just say, well, let's play this out to its logical conclusion. And you wind up with apocalyptic or dystopian. So to, to kind of piggyback on that, I think that there's something really interesting happening. When you, when you start to talk about uh, kind of the development of thought experiments, there's something happening really interesting culturally, I think, and that is that that there's starting to be a growing distinction between naturalistic world building and mythic world building. And it, it's a really it's a really complicated mm. topic, so I don't know how much time we have to go into it right now, but that's definitely something that we want to touch on. The idea of the supernatural versus the natural. That's fascinating. I mean, it, it may 
best be epitomized in short and as a little teaser uh, of DC versus Marvel, I think is one of the more interesting avenues to do this. Whereas Marvel's characters seem to have a little bit more definition to them, a little bit more concrete kind of setting in reality. The DC heroes are very cosmic in their level of power and difficult to quantify, which, uh, you know, that that will uh, definitely be something we jump back. Yeah, into I'd love to. I'd love to somewhere. do sometime in the near future, do a podcast talking about the differences in um, in intent. Because because Iron Man is yeah. a like you said, Iron Man is grounded in the reality of the Marvel Universe. There's a mythic quality to Batman mm. that keeps him mysterious. And that's phenomenal, which actually kind of leads us into this. We've talked about a number of different topics in here, and we've kind of touched on them really briefly. Can we just give this podcast some shape? What, what is the goal of this podcast? We touched on the goal of this podcast at the beginning of the episode in the intro. And I think our goal with the podcast is to really develop conversation around the topic of crafting fictional settings. I think that our ultimate goal is to inspire creativity and potentially collaboration around world building Hmm. and to really get a good sense of what its impact on narrative is. I'll just say that the name of our podcast is, uh, is not an accident, Worldcraft Club. Part of our goal is to, is to uh, draw people in. We want to hear what you have to say. We're interested in conducting interviews, not just with professionals in the industry, but uh, independent creators, people who are non-professional, doing it in their spare time. Because we think that this topic is big and broad enough that everybody can have an influence on it. So part of our mission is to hear from you guys, the uh, game masters out there who have an incredible thought they've been working on in a world they've been crafting or the independent authors who are trying to get a project off the ground we'd be really excited to talk to you and uh, one group that is especially beloved in my heart the concept artists for game designers like i find that fascinating i would love to talk with somebody who wants to tell us about their vision for the uh the visual arts that they've been creating to support the games that we build and love as james says we're really big fans of tabletop role-playing games, of interesting narratives and stories, of cool concept art. Mm. So some of the topics we're going to be covering will oh, be yeah. specific systems that we have played or that we're interested in playing and how those systems lend themselves to world-building. Cool world-building concepts that we think of or we hear from other people we're also hoping, as he mentioned, to do some interviews with a large variety of different creators. We're going to be covering specific IPs that we think lend themselves to world building or create interesting world building concepts. So IPs like Star Wars or Harry Potter or uh, Marvel or DC or the Aliens kind of universe that's just being adapted now. Yeah, and I even would love to explore some of the IPs that we see in other cultures, some of the Asian fantasy Mm. uh, that is growing in popularity, some of the Russian fantasy that's growing in popularity. 
um, Russian sci-fi that has some specific differences in the way they build the world versus the way Western creators tend to build their worlds. So there's a lot to explore mm. under this topic of world building. And if you stick around, I am sure that you are going to find tons of interesting conversations, which we hope you can join in. So we definitely invite you. Come and create with us. We're going to have a blast. Thank you for joining Seth and I on the Worldcraft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.